Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There is a new study that has been published in the journal Psychological Medicine that I, I th- boy, it struck me as eye-popping a little bit. It is that 30%, up to 30% of schizophrenia cases among young men aged 21 to 30 could have been avoided if they had averted cannabis use disorder. That's the, so, so heavy, heavy cannabis usage is leading to potentially or, or bringing on, uh, if it's a predisposition, I'm not sure, schizophrenia in young men. Now, this is something that I, I don't know. The, state, the study was in the States. I don't have any real reason to think that it wouldn't be the same here in Canada, but it raises a whole bunch of questions, including something that my next guest and I have talked about on this show before, which is, were we ready to legalize cannabis without knowing some of the things that it might have brought on. Some people are going to say that's reefer madness talk. We'll see. Uh, James McKillop is uh, not only a professor at McMaster, he is the director of the Peter Boris Center for Addictions Research at St. Joseph's. He is also the director of the Michael DeGroote Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research at McMaster. Joins us now, Dr. McKillop, thank you for this. Great to be with you, Scott. There's a few things in this before we get to that bigger question that I just sort of raised here that um, that really surprised me. One of them is the number of people who seemingly are having schizophrenia brought on by this use. But the other one, according to the Centers for Disease Control, um, cannabis use disorder, which is the underlying cause of these schizophrenia situations, affects three in 10 marijuana smokers. Is, does that sound realistic? That sounds incredibly high. It is a high number, but the reality is it's, it is also an accurate number. And I think that uh, one of the things that's so impactful about this study is the, the sheer scale of the data that they analyzed. They, they looked at nearly 6 million people over five decades using administrative data. And as you said, they really found some eye-popping associations between cannabis use disorder and the development of schizophrenia. Is cannabis use disorder a fancy name for addiction? It is. It's the clinical name. It's what we in healthcare would use to objectively describe someone who's experiencing clinically significant harms and distress from their cannabis use. Addiction is more of a colloquial term, and cannabis use disorder is the technical term we use. But haven't we always heard from people that... Uh, at least I have, cannabis is not addictive. It is recreational. It's something you can do, but it's not like hard drugs that are addictive. I'm afraid that's one of those myths that is tough to make go away, but is just that, a myth. The reality is cannabis use disorder is a real addiction like alcohol use disorder, otherwise known as alcoholism or opioid use disorder, otherwise known as opioid addiction. And it it happens uh, not to most people who use cannabis, but to a a sizable minority, and uh, unfortunately, it's associated with a lot of adverse consequences, including increased risk of schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders. Is the reason that we have then cannabis use disorder or addiction, does this have something to do with the fact that back in the day, you know, some of the people listening may have been in the Woodstock generation who smoked pot, the cannabis that that they smoked then is not nearly as potent as the stuff now. Is the potency the reason for the addiction? Well... It's definitely part of it. The The reality is addiction develops in large part to cannabis because of the THC in the, pr- the plant product. And THC is the psychoactive drug. It's what gets you high. 
but it's also what can lead to compulsive use over time. And what we know is that cannabis products have been getting gradually stronger and stronger over time. You know, the Woodstock generation were generally consuming marijuana that was on the the same order of strength as alcohol and beer, about four and a half percent. Nowadays, a lot of the cannabis you could buy from the Ontario Cannabis Store, 10, 15, 20 percent THC. It's much stronger product. As a result, people are exposing their brains to a lot more THC. And we're concerned that that's what's leading to to high rates of cannabis use disorder. Okay, and if 3 in 10, according to the Centers for Disease Control, if 3 in 10 have cannabis use disorder, and they're saying now this journal Psychological Medicine study says that 30% of those who, of of schizophrenia cases in men 21 to 30 who are using, have this, um, like it's, it's all seemingly like one thing after another that's piling on. Did we know all this before cannabis was legalized or is this stuff we're learning now? We did know this. So this study is, is in some ways unique because of the sheer scale in terms of the amount of, uh, decades of data that were reviewed and the sheer number of people. But fundamentally what it shows is the association between cannabis use disorder and uh, schizophrenia, which we've known about for a long time. We've always known that there's a correlation between the two. And this is the arguably one of the most dramatic illustrations of that correlation. And by virtue of their analysis, they could reverse engineer it to say, if there was no cannabis use disorder, how much schizophrenia would be prevented? Now, we have to be a little bit cautious there because that's an estimate based on their analysis. It's not something we could ever really know to be sure. Uh, and that, that's the other uh, critical thing to know is that we know a lot more about the correlation than we do about causation. We don't really know how cannabis use disorder or how just cannabis use in general contributes to risk of psychotic disorders. And that's where things get a lot more murky. Okay, so what's the legal age right now for buying cannabis in Ontario? 19. 19. So this is one of the real questions. Again, I don't want to be playing the reefer madness game and say anyone who smokes pot is, you know, whatever. That's not it. But if the legal age is 19, but we're looking at a study here, and I think you would probably say the same thing. We always hear 25 is when your brain stops developing. If age 21 to 30 is the age that this study is saying this is the real problem period for young men, especially to bring about schizophrenia. Is the one is it a mistake that we allow the purchase of marijuana at that age as opposed to older? I think it's a really good area for debate because this is where the evidence and policy grind against each other. And in fact, Quebec has a higher age of access for exactly this reason. You're exactly right that what we know is that the brain continues to develop into the early 20s and uh, starting younger for cannabis, but also for alcohol and tobacco tends to be associated with more severe outcomes ultimately. So there is a strong scientific basis for an older age of access. On the other hand, the challenge is people are legal adults at age 18 or 19, and there are considerations around to what extent do we continue to promote a large contraband market, an illegal market, if legal adults are prevented from accessing an otherwise legal drug. And I'll be honest, I think this is a difficult question. You know, certainly the the evidence suggests that the later you push the start of any use of cannabis, 
And, and the less cannabis you use, the lower the THC product, the better the outcomes overall. The, the, the challenge with what you just said, and I, I understand exactly where you're coming from, is that it seems to me, and maybe others will differ with on this one, it seems to me that anything that the government permits as legal is a tacit sort of saying, it's safe, it's okay, you can do it. I mean, you know, I'll be smart, but it's safe to use. And it seems as though if we're saying it's not really safe for people of a certain age, if you're 50 and you want to do it or 40, whatever, but for a certain age, it seems that it's not safe. And yet somehow the government is almost saying it's safe. Well, I think that that's one of those challenging nuances that often we have to uh, talk out loud to, to clarify, because the reality is just because something's legal doesn't mean it's safe, although we often interpret its legal status as communicating its safety. We know that alcohol is a legal drug. Alcohol is associated with drinking and driving, with uh, accidents, with injuries, with physical assault, sexual assault, domestic violence, suicide, homicide, lots of negative consequences. It's also associated with cancer, liver disease, kidney disease. Just because alcohol is legal doesn't mean it's safe. And the same is true for cannabis. I think that the, the case can be made that legal cannabis has fewer associated harms than illegal cannabis. But the, the reality is you're, you're correct, Scott, that lots of people hear cannabis is legal. Therefore, how bad can it be? Or the government would make it illegal. And I think that that's a, that's a challenging misperception to correct. One last thing before I let you go. Um, according to this study that, we, that got us started talking about this whole thing, the number, this is affecting a whole lot more men. When we're talking about schizophrenia and it being brought on by heavy marijuana use, it's saying that it's much more in men. Is that because men somehow are more susceptible to this, or is it because men tend to be heavier users? That's a, that's a great question. And I think that that's where this study, again, reveals a fascinating finding, but one that is an association rather than one that can be illuminated with any kind of causal mechanism. We do know that men tend to use more cannabis than females. We know that men tend to start younger. In general, men have higher substance use overall. So it's hard to know whether it's something to do with the biology of being male versus female or the associated behaviors of males versus females or the other realities around uh, schizophrenia in males versus females, which tends to be of earlier onset and somewhat higher severity also. So there's a lot of complexities, but there's no question, even though they found an overall finding for everyone, it was stronger in males. And I think that um, that's another area where we really are going to need to dig down more deeply to understand that differential risk. Dr. James McKillop, uh, director of the Peter DeGroote, or the Michael DeGroote Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research at McMaster and the Peter Bora Center for Addictions Research at St. Joseph's. Thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Great to talk to you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, yesterday on the show, for a few minutes, we were chatting about the number of consultants' reports and other reports that have been commissioned to come up with some kind of answer on what to do with the Hamilton Farmer's Market downtown. There's been a number of reports. 200000 they're looking to do one now. There was a $100,000 one. Something was 12000 There was something for fifty. There was a visioning exercise the mayor had for... Anyway, it went on and on and on. Today, 
We learned that the council is debating whether or not to use $50,000 by a consultant to study whether or not councillors' office budgets should go up, to look into whether that's necessary. And I bet you that if I was to go through the agenda over the last week or so, I bet we could find other reports that are being, consultants' reports that are being sought or been paid for. Why do we need to have consultants do so many things in a city that has between 7,500 and 8,000 employees and a council that is paid and chose that job to make decisions? Well, let me bring in one of those people who did that job for nine years. Used to be the counselor for Ward 2. Now he is the host of Hammer Down, a podcast on Cable 14. His name is Jason Farr. Sir, how are you? I'm great. I got to tell you, Scotty, this question is a whole lot easier to answer now that I'm no longer in politics. <laughs> well, many that you've thrown my way in the last year. <laughs> well, okay. So, Jason, uh, here's what I don't get is that we have people who want to sit around the council table. They choose to do this. No one has said, no one's come to their house with a rifle and marched them down to the horseshoe and said, serve. With presumably the intent that they want to make the decisions about the city, why is it so hard to make decisions? I think in this case, definitely in the farmer's market case, in let's say half, safely, of the cases where a consultant report is driven and devised and born on the council floor, it is indicative of not wanting to handle the hot potato on that floor, at that horseshoe, in Hamilton or any other uh, form of politics, to be frank with you. Uh, a farmer's market, is a we can get into that in a bit, but this... This issue of governance, I completely agree, and in fact can uh, walk the walk, because it was about six years ago where I had actually said, after hearing for my first term and then halfway through my second term, from all my colleagues, when we all used to get along, you got the hardest work. You got it. You got it tough. And I, my my budget was the same as everyone else's at the time, pretty much. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to take the college try from the council floor, working with staff keeping my colleagues advised all along the way, and I'm going to see if I can do something about it. I had six neighborhood associations, uh, BIAs, four, I think, at the time. There's just, it, I thought there was a lot of evidence, probably the most phone calls. If not, I know I'm going to be up there, but I'm going to look at all of this stuff. And counsel tell me how to do it, and Brad Clark, I'll never forget, he stood up and said, this needs to go to governance. Well, I'm not on governance. Well, then you're going to have to attend if you want to deal with this. So we did deal with this politically, which was a bit frustrating for me, not to sound bitter, I'm no longer in office, but there's been a few issues uh, since I have not been in office where I kind of you know, punching the radio going, hey, you made me go to governance and now you're going to go to a consultant and it's an easy way to just drop the hot potato and not have to deal with the issue. You do have, in this case, staff that are qualified. You do have a model through governance that can answer all the questions. And I did get the answers to how many phone calls. We were the second most. I did get the answer to how much time it takes to participate in all those BIAs and all those community organizations that nobody else had. And ultimately, I failed because uh, people like Brenda Johnson came up with great answers as to, well, you may have more BIAs, but I have more kilometers to travel. And it became a parochial thing. And I said, okay, well, I gave it a good co a college try, and we 
we did some adjustments, but it was for everybody, and it wasn't necessarily enhancements. It was sort of a dispersal of funds based on population. So at least the conversation got things going. No one ever thought on that one uh, that we needed a consultant. And but we have, but probably, Jason, we have consultants now for seemingly every little thing. And I thought that back in 2017, when council was told, you know what, you're using way too many consultants, get rid of some of the consultants. I thought we'd be seeing less of this, but it seems like we're nudging our way back into, we need to have a consultant on everything. We were seeing less. And I think this is a new council. And if that's their decision to uh, let an outside expert or experts make that call, Certainly staff welcome it. I think a lot of staff would welcome it because it's less on their plate. And you've alluded to that as well. 7,500 to 8,000 employees, surely to God, in most categories, there's somebody that has this specialty that can work with, uh, work with uh, the council on whatever the issue. Uh, that said, um, you know, there is value to having that expertise. And there's also value, I would suggest, to having an arm's length uh, review of an issue. So somebody who doesn't really have uh, a, a foot in the, on the on the playing field that can be, you know, non-parochial that can can uh, make make decisions based on on their expertise and the facts and the science or whatever it is that they are offering, okay. rather than some debate that goes seven hours and it's just a bunch of folks who really don't have that expertise. Okay, so and I'll I'll even go along with that one and say, okay, so for the farmers market, let's say we have a consultant. But it seems in this case like we've had a consultant, but maybe we didn't like what the consultant said, so we got to have another consultant. How many consultants can you possibly have on the same thing? Once you've had a consultant, make a decision. For sure. We, we, in my time, we had a, a consultant do a report on the previous consultant report. That's how insane the market is. When I say hot potato in local politics, the market is the dictionary definition. There's a picture of the Hamilton's Farmer's Market uh, nobody wanted to settle with, whether it's a consultant's report or really extensive work from internal legal directors of economic development, some pretty smart people. Remember John Hurtel, what a great guy he was, a smart guy, and he really had a, a business mind when we brought him in, Chris Murray. He, he was really good at finding a way forward for the market. The problem is, with the farmer's market, there's a lot of players, and you could get into the thousands of supporters who come up with petitions, thousands of names, save the farmer's market. And I'm always scratching my head, and I even said it publicly when they would delegate, and they delegated often to council. And I sat on the farmer's market subcommittee for eight months. I go, what are you trying to save? This thing's been around for 140 years. It's not going anywhere. Why is there even a petition with this title? But it's such a hot potato, and it's so concerning that if I was a counselor who felt maybe – they're all feeling a little overworked because they keep asking for more money, more bigger budgets. Uh, that's one that could take a whole lot of time and energy that if they could just pass off, if they had a, a choice to hand it to a consultant. But I'll tell you, it's starting to get embarrassing. And when you call attention to it, the reality is you're never going to make the folks at the farmer's market happy, no matter what a consultant's okay, says, but, but until you hand them over the keys and let them run the joint. Okay, and that's one of them, and you just mentioned, we got to go here in a second, but you yeah, also sorry. mentioned, no, no, the operating budget, that there's now a, cons- a, re- a request for a consultant to look into whether councillors should have larger office budgets. To me, th- th- this, this is the one of all of them that makes me just go, you sitting around the council are asking for more money for yourself. This is something that no consultant should have to say. Be an adult and vote yes or vote no and live with the consequences. 
This oh, is what you've been elected to do, to make decisions. And I know this might be embarrassing if you decide you want to vote for yourself to have more money, but do it and live with the consequences or don't and live with the consequences, well, but don't try and pass it off. It's oxymoronic if that's a term, because what you're really doing is saying, I'm overworked. I got too much going on here and I need more money for my office budget. I want to hire more people. I want to get some social media expert. I want a photographer. I want to have more community meetings where I can, you know, load up on the Tim Hortons for the good people that show. So they'll show. Uh, I want to have movie nights. But the reality is you're saying I got too much on the go. I need more money. But you're not you're you but let's hire a third party an outside adjudicator if you will to to uh prove that well how how it's not impossible to prove you just show us your daytimer show us the logs of the calls you're getting show us your email account and let's compare to the other wards and then maybe disperse funds accordingly based on all of those easily attainable information sources that can either you know uh confirm what you're saying is true or otherwise, you don't need to pay a consultant to do that. There is definitely more than enough talented people in finance and governance and clerk's offices that you can get that information, especially now in the digital age of the snap of the finger. So that one, that one really doesn't make sense to me. And also, why was it six years ago some of these people who were still in council were saying this, needs, this is a, government's pro- a governance process where the elected leaders around the table need to be a hold of this situation and, and be specific and hands-on on this situation and go through it in those in those in that way and now suddenly it's one where nobody wants to well, touch. Well, and we got to run. There's one other thing yeah. that could be done here. There's 15 councillors and a mayor. If everybody really needs an extra staffer, we've got 8,000 people working for the city. I'm sure yeah. we could relocate 15 people into a councillor's office or even one or two or three or five into a pool to help with this stuff and make this happen. We don't, it, I don't know why we have to consult and then hire more people and spend more money. Anyway, that's a discussion for another day. Uh, former council. Jason Farr. Appreciate the time today. Thank you. All right, Scotty. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Today is uh, today is a birthday of a very famous person. Now, I don't think I don't think it, my next guest. I don't think it's his birthday, but I know we can talk about the guy. Eric Alper is a music publicist and a music writer and a music a music everything. Joins me now, Eric. How are you tonight? I'm good. I'm good. You know uh, whose birthday it is I today? guess that you won't accept a sick camel either <laughs> as your answer. That's right. Yeah, right? it was a two-humped camel that had an operation to remove one. No, no, that's not it either. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah, see, I can, I, I can figure this out. I'm a smart guy. Do you know whose birthday it is today? Whose birthday whose it is 74th today? Whose 74th birthday um, it is today? What musician, what well-known one of the great musicians of our time has his 74th birthday today. I can't believe he's that old, quite honestly. Is it Billy Joel? Billy Joel. It is Billy Joel. I 74. Believe he's always Bi- looked 74, hasn't he? Well, he, he didn't for the longest time. And then one day, about 15 <laughs> years ago, he looked 74. <laughs> right. And I right. don't know what happened. He went from He went from being like young Billy Joel to a 74-year-old bulldog. Um, divorces. 
Maybe. Uh, crashing your motorcycle. Uh, divorces <laughs> from uh, supermodels. Uh, alcoholism. Uh, fighting with your manager. Suing your manager. Losing to a lawsuit of your manager. Um, and yeah, probably all those things. But I don't think he's had a... He's had a full 74 years, oh, that's yeah. for sure. Oh, yeah. No, he has had a full. I, I saw him uh, years ago. He came to Hamilton, and he yeah. actually had to cancel his concert in Hamilton. I don't know what the reason was, and then strapped it on so that he came to then Cops Coliseum, and it turned out to be the last. He put it on at the very end, so it was the last concert of his tour. And anyone who's listening who was there that night, I don't know what year it was, he played for about three hours. He just kept going because it was the last night. And it was it was outstanding. It was outstanding. And he always is. I mean, anything you watch of Billy Joel's live when he closed Shea Stadium or when... I mean, yeah. he's, he's just amazing. He's an amazing performer. Um, yeah, he's he's... He's got a really great life right now. You know, not only does he not need to tour, but he can show up wherever he wants to, like he did up at the new casino resort in... Um, St. Catharines yeah. in Niagara Falls um, not too long ago. Um, but now he plays every month. He does a monthly residency at a small club called Madison Square Garden. Yeah. <laughs> you might have heard about it. Um, it it only holds 18,000 of his closest and dearest friends. Um, and he ra- he gets a probably raises, I don't know, maybe $45, $50 million um, every you know, every 25, 30 shows, it's, it's, it's just a million dollar show for him every single time he goes yeah, on out yeah. and tickets are almost impossible to come by. Yeah. It's he amazing. pays a few bills. I'll tell you. And the, the amazing, <laughs> the most amazing thing about this to me is that I don't know when I'd have to go back and look his last album is, let me see, I'm pulling it up here. His last album. Oh, forever. Uh, River of Song. Was River of Dreams. One? I think in 1993. Yeah. His yeah, so it's been Brink, 30 Brinkley years. Did the, uh, painted it. Yeah. yeah, it's been 30 years that he has not really put out anything new, and yet again, it's it's it's, it's an amazing gig that he's got. That and 50 years ago this year is Piano Man came out. It's, it's just anyway. Let's um, yeah, it's amazing. His he he is um exactly the kind of performer that you want to be a fan of. Um, he'll tell you that he's not going to tour and then doesn't tour. He'll tell you that he's going to do a monthly residency until. He doesn't want to do it or people stop. And he's done exactly that. And it still continues to this day. He said that he is flesh out of songs. He's got no desire to write songwriting. Doesn't put out a bad album every three years like some artists or two years. Put out the record and there it is. And you have plenty of music to listen to in his history forever and ever. And, and you know, and we got to move on because that's not really what I was going to talk about today. But that is, that is to me... The secret here, how many artists do you go to see their concert and you want to hear all their hits and they've decided, no, no, this concert is about promoting my new crappy album with a bunch of stuff that nobody wants to hear and I'm going to push every song into that concert. And Billy Joel, you don't have that problem. You, you go and you hear exactly the stuff you want to hear that you know and you can sing along to. It's a, it's a, it's a brilliant concept. It's interesting that you bring that up and it's interesting that we're going to talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because I think when you get into the people who aren't in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, if they would have quit four albums, five albums ago, I think that they would be absolute shoo-ins. And it's not that I don't mind it when classic rock artists um, do new albums, but they have this burning desire to say, we're not going to go out on tour unless we have something new to promote. Now, I get it. Nobody wants to 
keep singing the same songs over and over and over again, but many people do. And if they're every paying you a million you bucks a, show, a night, it's new fans. If you're paying, you know? if they're paying you a million bucks a night, and I, yeah. if I wrote "Ba Ba Black Sheep," and they're paying <laughs> me a million bucks a night, I'll sing it every single night. I don't care how sick of it I am. I'll keep doing yeah, it. Yeah, I want, I want Mr. Roboto from Sticks. I don't <laughs> care how, how. How not cool that is. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just watched a YouTube video of, um, oh no, uh, the, the former lead singer of Styx. Um, Dennis DeYoung. Dennis DeYoung. There was a YouTube yeah. concert that he did probably, it was not a YouTube concert, it was a concert he did that's on YouTube probably seven or eight years ago. And I'll tell you what, for a guy who also is in his 70s, but who has, Billy Joel has a voice that, his songs are not in like a really high register. It's like it's a, anybody can sing a Billy Joel song, quite honestly. Dennis DeYoung's stuff is tougher vocally. And man, for a guy in his mid-70s, he is still nailing it. It was amazing. It was oh, amazing. he sells out shows in Quebec City in Ontario, um, almost like clockwork. He he comes to specifically Quebec. He does five or six shows. They love him. Um, Quebec has this very strange relationship a love love relationship with prog rock where they broke Genesis first and they broke yes first in this country. Um, and they love sticks. I went to an interview with Dennis DeYoung and I asked him about how he keeps the voice so strong and you know, which is the usual thing, diet and not smoking. And then he sung, he we just started to sing, you know, desert moon and all these days in the middle of the interview. And I was like, I was shell shocked because I think I lost part of my hearing, but the other part of it was that he, it was crystal clear. Yes, yeah, there was still not a grain in his voice that wasn't just so refined. It's it's amazing where you know it takes me eighteen coughs and a couple of sneezes just to <laughs> talk English and speak well in the morning. So okay, so the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class was announced the other day. We meant to have you on last week when it was announced, and we just couldn't make it work for whatever reason. But you know, I don't know. I am assuming. I have I have to pull it up here. I'm assuming that Dennis DeYoung is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I don't even know. Uh, but you, you mentioned a bunch of the bands that haven't quite made it in there yet. And some of the oversights and you mentioned, yes. All right. So yes, is not in the rock and roll hall of fame. The moody blues, not in the rock and roll hall of fame. Sticks is not in the rock. Come on. Really? Yep. Yep. Uh, guess who not in the rock and roll hall of fame. Um, like Kansas, Kansas is not in the rock and roll hall of fame. No, no. You can go through that whole list of, uh, Artists that have sold tens of millions of Ario Speedwagon, um, John Bon Jovi, Boston. Boston, um, come on, Boston's got to be in. I, I'm sure Brad Phil Collins is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Out of all the lists that I continually see over and over and over again, Phil Collins is the only, he's one of three musicians in music history to sell 100 million albums, both as a solo artist and as a member of the group. And the other two are some dude named Paul McCartney and some guy named Michael Jackson. So Phil should be in there. But you go through that list, though, and I think it really comes down to is nobody's really fighting for these artists in the 1970s. In fact, Jan Wenner, who was the the old publisher, editor of Rolling Stone magazine, who helped create the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, said in his in his autobiography that there is a lot of artists that made the record labels bonkers amount of money but now 35 40 45 years later nobody's really fighting for the cult to get in nobody's really fighting for fog hat or you know foreigner or you know all of these people jay giles band people that you think that would have already made it but no 
It's a lot. It, it, Phil Collins has to be in with Genesis, though. Phil Collins is in with Genesis. Yep. Peter Gabriel's in as a solo artist and as a member of Genesis, too. Okay. So the, the amazing thing about that, though, is, okay, so Phil Collins is in, but Ringo Starr was in with the Beatles and then got inducted as a solo artist. There is no way you can tell me that Ringo Starr is a better solo artist than Phil Collins was. Um, no, but Ringo Starr still has a lot of friends in the industry. Ringo Starr treats the industry very, very kindly, and the industry has paid him back. And he's still out on tour, even though that he does albums um, every like you know year, two years or so. Um, but yeah, you know he is just a cultural figure, and I think probably you know there were probably a lot of heat from the inside saying you cannot leave out a member of the Beatles as a solo artist. You just I simply guess, can't. I guess. All right. So the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They got you just listed a bunch of them that uh, you know I don't know how they're not in. I mean, although I've said this many, many times, it took forever to get Rush put in. And then you saw when they were inducted, the crowd reaction there. I felt badly for the other inductees that year because I don't even remember who it was, but it was like, okay, we're going to put in Bob Jones and we're going to put in Sally Smith. Yeah. And then we're going to put in Rush. (sighs) Place goes bananas. And I was like, okay, why, why? That's like going into the, the, uh, Hockey Hall of Fame the year Wayne Gretzky goes in. Like, just put them in by themselves because you know that that's going to be the reaction. But the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with all of its snubs, I realized, and I didn't realize this, nothing, nothing, cannot hold a candle in the snub world to the Country Music Hall of Fame. I I went through the list of who is not in the Country Music Hall of Fame. I don't know if you ever looked at this. It is stunning because I don't know a ton about country music. So the so if I know these people, if I know all the names of the people, it means they must have done something because I don't listen to a lot of it, so I'm familiar with them. Not in the Country Music Hall of Fame. Let me just give you a handful of them. Tanya Tucker, the mm. Judds, uh, Shania Twain. How in the world? Um, not Shania Twain. Alison Krauss, no. Um, June Carter Cash, no. Yeah. Dwight Yoakam, no. Katie Lang, no. Uh, oh, they put Shania Twain twice in that list. Uh, Trisha Yearwood, no. Faith Hill, no. Darius Rucker, no. Crystal Gale, no. Uh, I mean, how, who's in the Country Music Hall of Fame if these people can't make it in? <laughs> uh, nobody. Um, I'll add Charlie Rich to that list. Um, and even in the modern stuff with Tim McGraw's has been eligible now for 11 years. He's not in there. Really? Kenny Chesney. Uh, the Chicks. Look, the chicks. I mean, uh, I know, I know that they've had a little bit of a wonky relationship um, in there, but yeah, you know, you go through, you know, Billy Ray Cyrus and Blake Shelton. Um, yeah, you know, uh, there's always going to be, you know, when when you have any kind of music hall of fame, we can go through the Canadian music All right. hall of fame. Let's do that. I'm, just, I'm blown away that like Downchild isn't in there. There are no blues artists in the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. The music that almost every little bit of rock and roll is based on, um, they don't have a single artist from blues from, and I'm not even talking like Colin James, you know, or Jeff, he- you know, th- those, uh, just the fact that that Downchild Blues Band isn't in there is is surprising to me. Well, but yeah, you know, the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame had that too, though. You know, they can only... They only induct five or six people in there, and there's always 30 or 40 that are always eligible every year. The two, though, okay, the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, you know, there's a bunch that that you can make an argument for, that Sloan maybe, or that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the ones that you just said, or whatever. But there are two 
that uh, like this is this is I, I don't even have a word for how the Canadian Music Hall of Fame does not include Stomp and Tom Connors. Yeah, which is just what because he, he didn't want to. That that's all, that's almost his fault. Uh, yeah, but was, it, you yeah, know what? At I know. a certain point, when he's gone, you say, "All right, we 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 honored that." We can't have a proper Hall of Fame without in Canada without Stomp and Tom. But beyond that. Okay, I'm not a fan per se, but explain to me how the Canadian Music Hall of Fame could not have inducted Celine Dion. Um, here's what I know is that they have the the Canadian Music Hall of Fame people have tried for years to induct her, but she wanted to be there and it never ever worked it out with her schedule. Um, because she was always in Vegas and she was always in the States and she always had commitments. So I, I know for a fact that it's not a glaring omission by the industry not to put the spotlight on her, but she does not want to be inducted unless she is there. And she just couldn't make it for for a number of uh, uh, for a number of years. But yeah, she was probably probably eligible. I mean, I don't even think that the the, the Canadian Music Hall of Fame has a I don't even think that they have like a grace period where it has to be like say in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame where it's 25 years after your first album or your first EP release. I don't even think the Canadian Music Hall of Fame has any kind of um, stipulation on anything like that. Um, you know, so far as of last year, there were only 56 artists in there and there's a huge amount from the 60s, 70s and 80s that need to be in there. Um, but it had been brought up many 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 times both with me in the room and with me out of the room that um there's just a lot are of you a voter on the canadian music hall of fame for me are you a voter on the canadian music hall of fame i am a voter of the canadian music hall of fame all right so i didn't even know that so there you go so you you have yeah. i mean and, and there are some people i'm scrolling through the um the list and, and like look they, they've done a reasonably good job well pretty good job i mean some of the ones as you just as we just said are not there um most of the obvious ones that I would think of, or at least many of them are in, um, and, and it is a, it is a, boy, it is a wide variety. Uh, the funny thing is now I'm just, as I say, I'm going through this. I mean, everyone from Glenn Gould, the picture that they've got under inductees of Neil Young. I mean, how many photos do you think has been taken of Neil Young in his life? <laughs> and they've taken one where he's not looking at the camera and he must have been 22 years old. That's the right. weirdest choice. Right. <laughs> um, Guy Lombardo. It's so funny. Everybody now had that image. It's it's so it's so great that you mentioned that specific photo because I think I know exactly what photo you're talking he about. He looks like John Denver Yeah. in this photo. Yeah. Uh, Guy Lombardo is in there. I actually... Yeah. In 1970, this is going to bore everyone because they don't probably don't know who Guy Lombardo is, a lot of people. <laughs> um, my grandmother took our family to Disney World, and at the top of the contemporary, Guy Lombardo and his, what was his orchestra called? The Canadians? Guy Lombardo? and the, Anyway, yeah. I danced with my grandmother. I was probably seven years old to Guy Lombardo. I didn't know how, who he was, but I'm glad I did it now, now that I, you know, time has gone by. I had no idea at the time, but anyway, uh, total, total offshoot. But yeah, it, you know what? I, the thing about Celine Dion, though, to me, I know she wants to be there for this. At a certain point, do you not just have to put her in and say, show up if you want, don't show up if you don't want, but we can't have you not in the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. No, because a part of it is is a uh, part of it is just doing a television show. Um, oh, and yeah, it's content for that's another true. network that we're not on talking about right now. Um, but Terry Clark got inducted this year. Trooper 
Dr. Oliver Jones, um, who yep. was well, you know, well liked and 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 continues um, to put out amazing music. Um, you know, but like Trooper is an interesting one too because, you know, like of all the band and no slight to Trooper, no slight to that band whatsoever. But like that's what happens is like you got to pick one from country one from the 70s one has to be french and they did that with diane uh dufresnet and then one from jazz uh folk whatever it is or modern but they're not really doing anything modern though um except for nickelback when when they were inducted in the hall of fame and the reason why that they were inducted i think this year was just because the junos happened to be in calgary uh, the other one that I'm not seeing here, and they may be in the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, but as I'm scrolling through, I don't see them. How is Triumph not in? Uh, Triumph is not in there. Yep. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. It is always see, that, that's the thing with all these people. It's like for the Rock and Roll for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, do five a month. Nobody is going to say boo on that. Like nobody's going to say, well, you know, we didn't really get all of our. You know, we didn't get all of our year-long group of celebration. You only get it for a couple of weeks anyway. Go stick a bunch every single month in there. Make the people happy when they're here and alive and can go to these events and bring their family and their kids and their grandkids. But I think the one thing that hit everybody so super hard was when Gordon Lightfoot passed away um, recently, he, he got to see all the love while he was alive, he got the Music Hall of Fame. He got the 16 Juno Awards. He got the Songwriters Hall of Fame in America and 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 the the honorary doctorates. While he was still here, it's no use to anybody if they're gone. Yeah. So put these in, put the people that deserve to be in there, clean out the slate, and let's just move on to the 90s, 2000, 2010. There's a lot of hip-hop artists in Canada that deserve to be in there, too. Yeah, I didn't see Maestro Fresh West in there. Uh, speaking of, though, the, the, the Hockey Hall of Fame, one of the greatest disgraces, speaking of Halls of Fame, was when they didn't induct Pat Burns while he was alive and then waited until yeah. Pat Quinn was so ill that he couldn't go. And it's like, what was the point? What, what's the point? What, what, were, what exactly were you waiting for if you knew these people were going in? What was the point? And as for Gordon Lightfoot, he not only got all those things you talked about, but he also was reported on social media at least twice to have died yeah. when he hadn't. So he got to hear all the <laughs> right, glowing tributes right. to him that were his <laughs> obituaries. Right. He falsely reported. That's right. He 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 got to uh, he got to confirm falsely that he had died twice in his lifetime. That's not that's not a bad thing to you know to to be had. But it, yeah, you know there's there there was I, I can't remember who said this, but. In the Baseball Hall of Fame, um, you need a ridiculous percentage to get in. It's something like 75 percent yep. of all voters, and uh, you have to be retired, I think, for five years, yep. right? Yep. Um, and somebody got in. I mean, it was like Don Larson or somebody like that from the '60s or '70s um, got in on like the eighth or the ninth try, just barely kept being on the ballot. Um, and he was commenting, and he said, "You know." I didn't have that good of a year last yep. year, so I don't know why I'm in this year, which is funny because he had been retired for like 19 years previously. But that's how I feel about the Hall of Fame. Again, no slight to Trooper. They did really not 
do anything different than in 2021. So why now? Why now? Yeah. Well, Larry Walker from uh, Maple Ridge, BC, got into the Baseball Hall of Fame on his last year of eligibility. And as you say, he uh, he did not have a particularly good season the year before. <laughs> he was uh, golfing most of the time. In fact, he had a he had a 0. 0.000 batting <laughs> average. And yet he got into the Hall of Fame. So, you know, take that for what yeah. it is. Uh, Eric Alper, always love having you on. Thanks for taking time today. No problem. I'm happy to do it, Scott. We'll talk soon. That is, uh, yeah, I got to tell you, some of those ones, though, that have not made it in, especially the, the country music one. How, how in the world do you have a country music Hall of Fame with that many big names that aren't in? Are you just, are you waiting to build up the suspense? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. You know, I didn't even notice if Johnny Cash was in, it, it, I'm going to have to go back and look. If Johnny Cash is not in the Country Music Hall of Fame, shut the place down. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode and also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.